National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We cover a wide variety of topics, and our guests are experts in their fields. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation, and sometimes from around the world, to help us explore challenges in national security. If there are topics you'd like us to cover, please email KYMN Radio. Today we start a two-part discussion on humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. We're going to hear from an expert in the field of disaster relief who leads a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people recover from storms, floods, earthquakes, and other catastrophes. Retired U.S. Navy Commander Art De La Cruz has had a career that has taken him from the flight deck of an aircraft carrier to the boardrooms of some of America's largest defense corporations and beyond. He's demonstrated his leadership abilities in a diverse range of military, for-profit, and nonprofit positions. Art is drawn to problem-solving roles in high-stress, undefined environments, making disaster response the ideal field for him to apply his executive expertise. In the five and a half years since joining Team Rubicon, he's taken command of multiple departments that include programs and field operations, regional teams, marketing and communications, and people operations. His attention focuses on facilitating the organization's evolution by growing capacity and building future capabilities, and we're going to find out more about that as the show goes on. Right now, he's spearheading the organization's digital transformation effort uh, as executive sponsor, product owner, and change management lead. But beginning July 1st, Art Dela Cruz will step into the role of chief executive officer at Team Rubicon. Art Dela Cruz, welcome to National Security This Week. Hey, thanks for having me, John, and it's great to be reunited with my home state of Minnesota. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Art is from Minnesota, and where are are you at this morning, Art? Uh, I am dialing in from lovely and sunny Los Angeles. And and how's the weather out there today? Uh, I can't complain. A little foggy here on the coast, but that'll burn off and we'll have our typical, you know, 70-degree day. (laughs) Okay, rub it in, rub it in. (laughs) We're going to be 90 and humid here today, supposedly, so uh, there you have it. So, Art, let's get started. You've had an extraordinary professional career. Leadership positions have been a benchmark of that career. Uh, What do you think are the most important leadership lessons you learned while serving on active duty in the U.S. Navy that you apply regularly today? Yeah, I think, um, you know, number one is I'd start with, you know, leadership has really been a journey for me. You know, over the course of 22 years, you can imagine, you know, the lessons learned, some learned, you know, through triumph and some learned through failure. So I think that's the first piece. But, you know, a few things really stand out clearly uh, and guide have guided my actions really for the past 20 years. And the first one is pretty obvious, you know, and that's take care of your people. You know, ultimately, you know, you can position yourself in two different ways. You can be a leader, you know, where you're giving a clear vision, you're articulating what you expect people to do, you're trusting them to perform, um, or you can be a manager, you know, where you're simply going through the motions of, of getting through a program or doing the, the admin um, surrounding them. And I think they're, they're really, really different. And the people expect and I think deserve that high touch that leadership position should allow. And that involves, you know, passing the good news. It involves passing the bad news. It involves, you know, the leaders taking, um, taking the fall when things don't quite go right. And also sharing, you know, the credit uh, where it's due uh, when the rubber hits the road. So I think that's, that's one big piece coupled 
um, closely with that, you know, taking care of your people. I think a big piece of that, especially in these times where everyone is overtaxed, where everyone is running at 110%, where everyone wakes up in the morning and says, you know, what am I going to triage and what am I not going to triage is really stepping back and encouraging the people that you work with and for to ensure that they're really concentrating on the things they can control and then mitigating those things that they can't affect. I think, you know, every day you could turn your life into, you know, the journey of Sisyphus and push the the rock up the hill. Um, And if it's something you can't control, it's something you can't change. It's something that your people can't, you know, make a difference on, you know, then that rock's just going to roll back down the hill. So being able to, to fence those things off, control those, really is an incredible way to fence off and, and pre, you know, create guarding mechanisms to take care of your people. Um, the final one, um, and I think, you know, we kind of learned this as, as teammates at the Naval Academy playing hockey, is I'm a big believer that everyone wants to be a part of a winning team. And I say that not from a competitive standpoint. I say it from you know, how do you begin to understand and fulfill a person as they go through whatever task it is, be it a job, you know, be it a role, be it some type of responsibility they're volunteering for? How do you create this, you know, sense that um, there's fulfillment out of it, that there's some type of intrinsic return and value generated in the actions that they're doing? Because people are motivated in that that fashion. I think people like to look back on their day, say they've accomplished something, be able to tie their actions, their words, and their vision to you know something you know likely bigger than themselves. So those three things are kind of the starting point, you know, as I deal with with people I have the privilege of being around and leading. So uh, if I if I can summarize uh, what I think I just heard from you, uh, there's a huge difference between leadership and management, and some people screw those two things up uh, royally. Uh, leaders lead, uh, managers just manage process, right? Leaders lead people, managers handle uh, resources. And then the other thing was people want to be part of something much bigger than themselves. They want to feel like they have a purpose, a mission. Uh, is that a, is that kind of a good summary? Yeah, I think you I think you nailed it, you know, as as you look at that. And to dive a little deeper on the the leadership versus management piece, I think they're intertwined, right? Sure. You can, you know, as we talked about, you can manage in a manner that that again fences off the things you can't control, but you lead people through that. So you'll bounce back and forth. I think when when people pick one silo or the other, that's when they begin to, you know, not really capture the opportunities in front of them when it comes to leading people. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so, Art, I know you spent uh, time in corporate America after you uh, retired from the Navy, and then you shifted to disaster relief and humanitarian assistance. Uh, what was it about HADR? That's the short short version of saying disaster relief and uh, humanitarian assistance, HADR, that drew you away from a potentially lucrative corporate career into your current role. Yeah, I think it was kind of, you know, that that transition or, you know, as, as a mentor of mine, you know, told me, he's like, Art, you know, after you retire, you're going to go through campaigns, you know, and these campaigns are going to involve, you know, different roles and different things you're going to do. And hopefully in each of those campaigns, you'll intrinsically grow in a manner, you know, that you hope for. So I think, you know, my time in the corporate world, having come out of 22 years in the military was one largely of growth. 
I'd never been exposed to business development. I'd never been exposed to true profit and loss. I'd never been exposed to corporate strategy. Um, and that position allowed me to get exposure and catch up really to the peers that I'd been around. You know, I'd been in, been in cockpits for my entire career, but I'd never tried to build an airplane. I'd never tried to sell an airplane. I'd never tried to source, you know, pieces. So I learned a ton out of that. And when the opportunity to join um, Team Rubicon as, you know, the chief operating officer presented itself, you know, I think intrinsically that was my second campaign. And I had to ask myself, you know, how do I apply the things that I'd learned in my previous position, which involved, you know, business development, which is really, you know, sales to a large extent, strategy, which is, you know, setting the course and vision for the organization, and then uh, coming up with the plan, um, distributing that to the division so they can execute it um, and apply it in a different realm. And it just happened to be humanitarian um, assistance and disaster relief. But what was really, really different about it in making that jump is, you know, getting to that first question, right? What, what drives a person, you know, in that winning team is I found, you know, incredible satisfaction in generating value in a different way. You know, I had spent um, time generating shareholder value. You know, we'd sat through executive meetings and we'd understand, understood, you know, how, how that, you know, capitalism and, and increasing value um, for the shareholder works. And one of the things I found is a lot of those same principles, those same levers that create value in the humanitarian assistance and disaster response world, you know, that I would join, you're just generating a completely different type of value, but that value is incredible. It's value for the volunteers. They feel like they're giving and they're getting it's values for the people who invest in the organization. They feel like they're contributing to helping people on their worst day. It's just certainly generating value for the communities and the men, women, and families that we serve, you know, on their worst day. So I think that, that, that was the the big piece for me was you know just being able to step back and go hey this this is the winning team I'm a part of and and you know selfishly just saying this is something that I really feel good about which you know personally helps helps me maintain my well being helps me teach my kids you know values that I hope you know they'll find uh, will serve them uh, better through their lives and certainly at the end of the day when I put my head on the pillow. Um, you know, hopefully I can say I help somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so Art Dela Cruz, can you give us a rundown on Team Rubicon? What, what is Team Rubicon? What do you do? Who's part of the organization? And, and where do you carry out your missions? Yeah, so Team Rubicon is a nonprofit that was founded after the earthquake 11 years ago in Haiti. Um, the co-founder and CEO, a Marine named Jake Wood, um, came back from tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, saw the devastation in Haiti and said, I can make a difference. Uh, he ends up, you know, joining, you know, building a small team of eight people 11 years ago. Um, and they deliver aid to the Haitians, you know, after the worst uh, humanitarian crisis, you know, this we've certainly seen recently. Um, and over that time, the mission, the scope, and the size has grown. We are now a you know, disaster response organization that mobilizes military veterans to help communities prepare, respond, and recover from humanitarian crises and natural disasters. 
Um, so that team uh, originally of eight people has grown to a hundred fifty thousand volunteers. Wow! <laughs> uh, we're yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's enjoyed tremendous growth. Uh, we are spread across all fifty states. We've served primarily domestically um, with well over eight hundred operations thus far, and also uh, internationally. Um, you know, in in response to everything from tornadoes to hurricanes, flooding. Uh, COVID has certainly played a role as we've moved forward. Um, and what we do is we, we, these military veterans who compose about 60 to 70% on any given day of our volunteer pool, we, you know, identify disasters. Uh, we mobilize uh, these military veterans and civilian responders and they deploy to help people. You know, you train uh, and equip these people to be able to serve. Okay. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Art Dela Cruz, incoming CEO of Team Rubicon, a U.S.-based veteran-centric disaster relief and humanitarian aid nonprofit. Uh, so, Art, you, you've held a wide variety of positions at Team Rubicon, uh, so you're thoroughly familiar with the complete workings of the volunteer nonprofit you'll soon lead as the CEO. Uh, that said, let's run through how a response from Team Rubicon would work. Uh, and amazingly enough, we just had a tropical storm pass through uh, a, a moment ago by uh, or over the past weekend. I, I think it was called uh, uh, Charlotte or something like that. I don't remember uh, what it was that hit the Gulf Coast. But uh, let's pretend there's a, a Category 3 hurricane that hits uh, South Texas and Louisiana. Major flooding, houses destroyed, water supplies fouled, etc., how does Team Rubicon activate a response? When do you decide that you're going to deploy a group? You know, how do you pull people together to send to those areas? Uh, so maybe you could run through that for us so we better understand how the process works. Yeah. Um, so I'll start first with saying Team Rubicon prides itself on, you know, stealing the best parts of the, the military and, <laughs> and leaving the stuff that's uh, undesirable, right? Um, so we're not setting people up in the morning and, uh, you know, in, in formation and marching them off. Right. Um, but we use a lot of the same mindsets that we had in the military to be able to prepare and a lot of uh, synergy between, you know, what we've done. So we'd see this hurricane, you know, off the Gulf like we did last week. We have essentially call it a uh, information cell that is able to take this information. We're going to look at the projected path of the storm. We're going to take a look at the areas that it could hit, and we're going to evaluate where it's likely that we'd have to deliver need. Um, as an example, we'd use the social vulnerability index, which takes 15 data points from the census and really kind of begins to narrow your scope so you can ensure that you're helping the people that are going to be most vulnerable and have the least ability to economically endure the results of a, a storm. And you can begin to narrow in on um, areas where it's likely that people are going to need help. You know, how do you avoid um, helping, uh, you know, the homeowner of a second, you know, summer home or winter home, you know, on the Gulf Coast when there's someone who it's their primary home, that type of a thing. How do you how do you identify someone who's um, uninsured versus someone's in, uh, insured um, as this is happening? So all of that is happening. In addition, we're taking a look at where our volunteers are. We can literally you know, pinpoint where those volunteers are and what they can do, what kind of skills they bring. And as the storm uh, transits, we've got people 
and we understand the communities we'd likely serve, and we have a good idea what type of damage is likely to be there. So we begin to pre-position materials that we might need, you know, that might be trailers full of muck out equipment to help a flooded home, or it might be a route clearance team with a, a skid steer, chainsaws, you know, and heavy equipment to clear roads. Um, and then as the storm hits, you know, the trick is to understand immediately where you might be able to um, deliver services and generate outcomes that a community needs. Um, we work closely with local emergency managers, oftentimes with, you know, local authorities to include fire departments, you know, and police officers. They'll identify areas where there might be potential need. And then we'll send out our own team, usually in a truck, and it's our recon team, which, again, is a term that people are pretty familiar with. Um, they'll be armed with digital tools as well as, you know, um, the ability to ask people and understand, you know, what type of damages are there. They will map those. And as that is happening, if it warrants it and we can deliver services that will be impactful for that community, uh, we start mobilizing volunteers across the country you know they'll open up their phone in the morning and the, the bat signal will go up and they'll see an sms <laughs> that says hey we need you in in lake charles louisiana because they got hit again um and we'll we'll build concentric circles around that around that uh that centerpiece continues to grow until we get the volunteer density we need to send the first wave and then they're off and running They'll rendezvous, they'll meet, you know, typically we'll find a place to set up a forward operating base. It's probably a church or a gym or a Home Depot parking lot. Um, we'll get the people there and we'll start delivering um, aid as soon as we can. And then we'll bring in the reinforcements and continue to build in the delivery of those services, you know, as we move forward. And then through it all, we're continually evaluating whether or not um, we can deliver more aid. Uh, through services or different capacities. At, at what point uh, in the recovery process uh, do you finally say, okay, you know, we're, we're pulling off of this particular uh, storm response or, you know, tornado response, flooding response, and moving to the next project and the next project, the next response? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty interesting thing. And, you know, our goal is to try to, you know, again, be there as long as it takes to solve the problems that are pe people are there. But, you know, as an example, you know, Hurricane Harvey hit in 2017 and we're still there. We're still wow. rebuilding homes because people are still, still suffering. Um, so it depends on the type of services you deliver, but it could be years or it could be weeks. Um, really once the, the meaningful work goes away, then it's time to evaluate whether or not it's worth, you know, um, staying there. Because again, you have to have an exquisite experience for the volunteers. Right. They're not giving up their time. They're not taking time away from their families to sit in a place, twiddling their thumbs, <laughs> right. waiting for work. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's a, yeah. that's a big driver for us as well. Um, but we'll look to deliver aid or connect the communities we're serving with the aid, you know, that's there. And then we make follow on decisions for how long um, we'll stay. Okay. So do you consider, Team Rubicon to be kind of a force multiplier for all the other things that are there or, or a primary responder? I mean, how, how do you guys view yourselves? Yeah, so the, you know, the, the unique thing about uh, disasters is, you know, across all of the ones I've seen in five and a half years is there is never really a shortage of work. <laughs> um, so really, you know, on the day disaster strikes, you're not competing with anybody. You're, you're really partnering and trying to triage as a, a whole community to help people as quickly as possible. You know, we will see tons of different organizations there, 
you know, we will, you know, all contribute our assessment of damage into, into basically this, this big, you know, pile of work orders. And then people will pull out of those, you know, I might not have met the homeowner or team Rubicon might not have met the homeowner will serve later on, but because potentially the area we're in or the type of services they need, we'll pull that work order down and deliver that uh, aid. So really it's, you know, it's teamwork is a, is a requirement, an accelerator and a catalyst for greater um, return in the efforts of uh, everyone who's there to help people. Okay. Uh, so you mentioned that Team Rubicon was founded uh, 11 years ago in Haiti. Uh, you, you also mentioned that your nonprofit uh, works primarily in the United States, but you do have a, a, a little bit of overseas uh, experience. Uh, can you give our listeners a bit of your vision for how Team Rubicon will continue to expand capacity and capabilities uh, to assist people trying to recover from natural disasters in other parts of the world? It sounds like you have a pretty good uh, program for the U.S. response, but how, how are you going to do that elsewhere? Uh, so Team Rubicon's roots are actually, you know, founded in Haiti, as you talked about, in international. And most of the follow-on work in the early years was was international deployments. And we have put a lot of effort into ensuring that, you know, as global community members, that we have the ability to respond around the world. Um, so we received a certification from the World Health Organization for um, EMT Type 1, Emergency Medical Team Type 1, um, which essentially... Through the World Health Organization, they set guidelines and standards that says, you know, when you deploy, this organization deploys, they will not be a tax on the community they're serving. They will be there for a net, you know, net positive effect. So we're not coming into that area and competing for water mm -hmm. or competing for shelter or competing for hospital space. We are specifically there under this. Um, EMT type one to be self-contained for two weeks, right? So that's just an example, you know, of, of what we are doing. I think the pandemic brought some very, very unique um, taxes um, to the world health system. And we found that, you know, a lot of our medical providers, be it of uh, military background or civilian background, had the ability to deploy. We were asked by the World Health Organization to send uh, medical teams to Papua New Guinea. They were, uh, you know, they enjoyed a period where they had no COVID infections. And then it, like it often does, it turned into a wildfire that overwhelmed their medical um, health system. And we were able to deploy people there to help in that situation. After the um, hurricanes hit Honduras, you know, we were able to send down our, you know, water uh, sanitation and hygiene teams to uh, Honduras to help ensure that, you know, families had, you know, clean, clean water. And then we, we trained them and other nonprofits on how to um, ensure that that uh, continued after we'd left. Um, so we are standing up, up international, call it division that will concentrate specifically on deploying men and women with the right skill sets around the world. Uh, so we'll continue to grow that footprint. All right. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Art Delacruz, incoming CEO of Team Rubicon, a U.S.-based veteran-centric uh, disaster relief and humanitarian aid nonprofit. Uh, so Art, uh, Team Rubicon, that veteran-centric organization, how do military veterans get involved with Team Rubicon? 
Uh, what are your manpower needs or your expertise needs uh, you know, that could be filled by veterans who ha- might be listening to this show right now? Uh, how, how, do they, how, how might those veterans enable Team Rubicon to respond to natural disasters or longer-term humanitarian assistance missions? I mean, what, what are you looking for in the way of volunteers? Yeah, I think it's it's really important, and I think this gets to the larger dialogue around you know what a military veteran brings. And one of the common questions that's asked of me is, you know, hey, I I, I fixed tanks, or I drove, <laughs> you know, pickup trucks, or I worked on radar systems. You know, how does that apply to um, disaster response? And the reality is, veterans bring skills that are intangible in disasters. As an example. Um, leadership or ability to make decisions in with incomplete information, um, the ability to um, adhere to process and procedures. Those are the types of skills that in a volunteer veteran led organization like ours are incredible. You can put a sergeant or a petty officer in front of, you know, 10 community members that have volunteered to help their community recover. And that, that man or woman is going to be able to lead them. One of the things I like to say when it, when I discuss military veterans and even talking to them about the skills they have is, you know, don't look at yourself as someone who was part of just the service, right? You, you actually graduated from a pretty unique school, yeah. you know, so you have, you took classes and you have courses and you have experience that others don't have. Um, and that allows you, you know, to be effective in the field. The other piece about it is um, to use that as the starting point is one of the things we want to deliver is, um, you know, the, the work we do ranges from, you know, complex, high process, you know, high qualification, which will train people to do working heavy equipment, you know, making, uh, becoming a Sawyer and using a chainsaw the right way without, you know, bringing risk or injury to property or people. Um, and there's also stuff that requires, you know, biceps, you know, thighs, you know, blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, and that's mucking out houses, you know, ripping wet carpet out of a house, you know, so mold doesn't set in. Um, and those are the types of things as well that are really, really valuable. So our volunteers, especially the veterans, can chart their journey, take the responsibilities, and show up when they want to show up. So, you know, simply by signing up and saying, listen, I when, when they – when it's right for me, I will show up and volunteer. I will, I will take 100 no's for that one yes when John Olson says, yep, it hit my community, I'm ready to go, and I'll be there next weekend. Um, so that's the first piece. The other part is, you know, veterans, you know, from a selfish standpoint, I talk to a lot of veterans who go through their transition. They, they end up in their next, you know, campaign, and, and they – find that something's missing. You know, they've built muscles, you know, that were hidden under their, their summer whites or their, their fatigues, whatever it might be. Uh, and they don't get to use them. Um, and organizations like ours help these veterans use those muscles again, um, to reconnect with community, to reconnect with an identity that they had in uniform. And, you know, we wear gray shirts, but we're a team that's out there and to really have this clear cut mission, and in doing so, right, we find that our job as a nonprofit isn't to serve the veterans. You know, veterans aren't the object of our mission, but they are certainly the agent of our mission. Sure. They're our secret sauce yeah, yeah, because yeah, you can yeah. take them, you can add them and mix them up with, with civilian populations or emergency managers. And, you know, amazing things are going to happen. So, you know, for the veterans out there, 
sign up, go to teamrubiconusa.org and put your name on the list. Um, and we will call on you. And when it's time for you to say yes, we look forward to joining you in the field. All right. Uh, so, Art, how much does Team Rubicon coordinate with other uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations like Red Cross, for instance? Yeah. So, um, you know, the Red Cross specifically, people, you know, oftentimes, you know, think of us as, you know, competitors. And, you know, as I talked about earlier in the show, we're, we're really partners, right? So we coordinate, we share information, we run into each other constantly in the field. And specific to the Red Cross, one of the unique things is, you know, that hurricane scenario you talked about, it devastates somebody's house. The Red Cross is going to take that family. They're going to find a place to shelter them. They're going to make sure they're going to have food. We'll come in, take a look at their house and say, listen, you've got a giant hole in your roof. We're going to tarp it. We're going to remove the fall, fallen tree from your driveway so you can go in and we're going to stabilize your home. So in that, we're doing uniquely different, hmm. delivering different services that holistically help that family. So okay. this, the, the men and women are the centerpiece of it all. And then each of us contribute as we do that. You know, we don't, again, we try to stay out of each other's way. We try to have, you know, seamless handoffs when we can, but it's really about collaboration. Okay. And how much does your organization, uh, Team Rubicon, coordinate with, say, the U.S. military or, or even USAID in your overseas operations? Yeah. So, you know, part of our international expansion is going to be uh, growth for um, it's going to require us to, to coordinate very closely with USAID. We've had track records with them in places like the Philippines, you know, in Tacloban after um, the typhoon hit there. Right. We've also participated in exercises, particularly medical exercises with the U.S. military. So we maintain you know, those ties uh, with those organizations and, and collaborate with them in the field. We just finished uh, an exercise in, in your neck of the woods, uh, Patriot X, with uh, Wisconsin's National Guard, as a matter of fact, okay. where it was specifically designed around how we coordinate with local agencies, the National Guard and nonprofits to respond. And they had a couple of scenarios, you know, a big, uh, big storm and also, you know, an earthquake scenario. So we work closely and, and train closely and prepare for the game day with the same, same teammates. So in those overseas operations, uh, do you tie into what's, I think it's still called a civil military operations center. Is that right? A CMOC? They still use those? Yeah, as, as required, you know, we'll coordinate. Most of the, the unique thing about uh, international operations is we will never enter without you know, host country requests and notifications. So those are largely coordinated through the World Health Organization. Okay. Um, so they will uh, do that. The The ministries at the appropriate uh, countries will send those re requests. Um, so we won't show up uninvited yeah. um, because, again, then you become part of the problem instead of a contributor to the solution. Sure. Uh, so, Art, there was uh, recently an article written for Proceedings, which is a publication of the Naval Institute Press, about the idea of creating a, an officer specialty in the U.S. military for uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. Uh, you were a career naval officer, and you now lead Team Rubicon. Do you think the U.S. military would benefit from such an officer specialty? Uh, and I ask that because HADR has become an important mission for the U.S. military as a soft power capability, one in which the U.S. military, we can use our our platforms, our logistics capabilities, and, and our outstanding young people to help people of other nations in their most dire hours of need following a natural disaster. I mean, what do you think? Is, is that something that the military should look at? 
Yeah, you know, it's it, it's interesting because, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those questions where I find myself, you know, and this is something that always bounces through my head is, you know, do what you do best and partner for the rest. <laughs> you know, so I, I guess, you know, at the danger of dilution of, of mission, that is sometimes a consideration. But, you know, the humanitarian in me says that, you know, any contribution we can make to alleviating humanitarian, you know, disasters or suffering um, is something that's worthwhile. And certainly um, we have the ability to project um, significant services in times of need. I mean, when I was a officer in the military, I know they, you know, as as our carrier was returning and a a typhoon hit the Philippines, you know, the island of Panay, they said, hey, art let's let's do this and we were delivering water and food you know in the the initial days across the countryside because we had helicopters and we had you know airplanes that could land you know on airstrips and we happen to have you know water and things like that um so i think there is you know certainly um value in that you know at our roots in in haiti that was uh, the u.s military was was present and i think you know, those soft skills that you talk about are very, very important because you have to understand how to coordinate. You have to understand, you know, at times there's different, you know, leadership and coordination that is going to be necessary to be effective. Um, so I think in those moments of time, it's it's certainly important. And I think you're not going to, you're going to generate value by, you know, training or at least uh, under, better understanding either who you're partnering with or the the actions that you can contribute that will help, you know, a holistic response. Uh, so, Art Dela Cruz, we have just a, a few minutes left. Uh, what else do you want uh, listeners to know uh, about your work uh, at, at Team Rubicon, uh, what your organization does, or, or volunteer opportunities with Team Rubicon? Uh, what, what do you want people to know? The floor, uh, I, the floor think, is yours. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think the first thing, and this is more broad than than Team Rubicon, if there's one thing you know, that the past, you know, 14 months has taught me is individual acts of philanthropy, volunteering, you know, pulling some money out of your wallet, have collective impact. You know, we found in uh, COVID, as an example, on March 12th, you know, we said, hey, Team Rubicon can survive or we can thrive. We basically retooled our organization and said, we're not going to do feeding operations, testing, vaccinations. You know, we've been in 400, 420 operations related to COVID cities we've delivered, you know, help distribute vaccines. So, you know, you as an individual know that your acts contribute to societal impact. Um, so that's the first piece, you know, re- regarding Team Rubicon, um, you know, we're an organization that always looks for volunteers. We volunteers are a secret sauce. Uh, people, um, that are willing to, you know, do what's required in that moment's notice to make sacrifices, be it with time with your family. Uh, and they join us. And my job as this, you know, soon to be CEO. And the thing I ask my 180 employees to do is to ensure that the volunteers have a great experience, right? If we do that, they come back. If they might be the most tired they've ever been, you know, (laughs) certainly in in recent memory, because they've been mucking out a house or they've been, you know, moving logs to cut a fire line, you know, in the West or, you know, helping people move debris in Chicago after these tornadoes, 
they're tired, but hopefully they're fulfilled. They can look at the homeowners, the survivors, the communities and say, I made a difference and contributed to delivering dignity and hope. So, you know, you can look them in the eye and say, tomorrow will be better because of volunteers that come from all across the country are trained, have the equipment um, and the identity to, to be there for a, a noble and needed mission. Uh, unfortunately, we've uh, we've come to the end of our show for today. Uh, Art Dela Cruz uh, with Team Rubicon, thank you so much for joining us today on National Security This Week. Thank you for having me, John. It's been a true pleasure. Uh, you take care out there in L.A. I know you have a hard stop. we got to get you out on the road so you can get over to, to your offices there in L.A. Uh, so, folks, we're going to continue this conversation next week when our guest will be John Patterson, who serves with USAID. Uh, John Patterson will help us to understand the broader global efforts in the humanitarian assistance and disaster relief mission. And you'll absolutely want to join us again uh, for next week's show of National Security This Week. Uh, That closes this week's edition of our show. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our show again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everybody. Take care. been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week. Find your style with Patriot Lighting at Menards. Stop in and check out the great selection of utility lights. The LED 